0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Approximately 80% of Americans can expect to experience back pain at some time in their lives.
2: Some back pain is acute and caused by a fall or injury, while other longer-lasting pain may be due to a chronic condition.
1: October 16 is World Spine Day. On today's program, we'll discuss back problems and spine surgery with a Mayo Clinic expert.
2: Also on the program, Dr. Jake Strand will join me as co-host to hear one physician's personal battle with leukemia and how it changed her life and career path.
1: And we'll have some tips on how to treat and prevent jet lag.
2: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Tracy, you know, most of us have experienced it. Oh, my aching back. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, yep. Well, back pain is one of the most common reasons people go to the doctor or a reason that they miss work. And it is a leading cause of disability around the world. Back pain can come on suddenly, caused by a fall or heavy lifting. Now, this acute or sudden-onset back pain usually goes away with some minor activity restrictions and over-the-counter pain medications. It's usually with a
2: capital U, right? (laughs) Usually. Back pain that lasts more than three months is categorized as chronic, and it may require more extensive treatment, including surgery. Here to discuss minimally invasive spine surgery, That doesn't seem possible. (laughs) And to help bust some back myths is Mayo Clinic Neurospine Surgeon Dr. Mohammed Biden. Welcome to the program, Dr. Biden. It is great to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having
1: me. Dr. Biden, good to have you here. So, I, I actually haven't heard it phrased quite that way before neurospine surgeon. So, you're a neurosurgeon or a brain surgeon who does spine surgery, right? Exactly.
3: Spine surgery is done by two specialties in medicine neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery, which
1: you know a lot about, Dr. Shives. Uh, yeah, but I don't know much about the spine, and that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned.
2: I, I just have to say, how in the world is there such a thing as minimally invasive spine surgery? That doesn't seem possible.
3: Well, it's a uh, an emerging field um, that uh, you know, has been pioneered uh, by several people, uh, including those here. And uh, the field of minimally invasive spine relies on really a few um, key things. You may have seen commercials for what they call laser spine, for mm-hmm. example.
1: Laser-, laser spine surgery, there is such a thing?
3: Well, we don't call it that at Mayo Clinic, and I'll give you the reason. Laser spine surgery essentially refers to uh, minimally invasive spine interventions and procedures. The reason that we don't call it that at Mayo Clinic is that most of the interventions and procedures around spine, even those that are minimally invasive, don't involve lasers, although some do. Here we use the term minimally invasive uh, spinal interventions or spine surgery. Uh, the term laser, as those places are calling it, generally is referring to... Um, you know, minimally invasive procedures or tests. Sometimes that can be a transforaminal epidural steroidal injection. Sometimes that can be a selective nerve root block. Sometimes that can be a nerve ablation. Other times, when it refers to surgery, then we get into either decompressions or stabilizations or the kinds of things that we do. So, for example, discectomies can be done either open or tubular. And when
1: you say discectomy, tell ah, us what you mean.
3: That's when you have a disc herniation. So that joint in between the two vertebral bodies, you have a disc herniation that disc herniates. compresses one of the nerve roots and then generally uh, uh, the mainstay of treatment is first you start with conservative therapy but if you fail physical therapy and injections then you go on to surgery and if you go on to surgery that surgery can be done in one of three ways one is traditional open open take out the bone take out the disc the second is minimally invasive tubular where we go in with tubes access the bone Drill the bone and take out the disc, and the third is percutaneous. In my practice, I do both percutaneous and tubular, the two ways of minimally invasive. In the percutaneous way, we don't drill any bone. In the tubular way, we drill some bone. The um, and then the some some people use the percutaneous with an endoscope, or you can do the tubular with a microscope. The interventions are done by our colleagues in radiology, physical medicine and rehab, or anesthesiology. The surgeries are done by neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons. So those are kind of the things, and the basic premise of minimally invasive spine surgery is to avoid muscle crush injury. In a traditional spine surgery, and not everybody's a candidate for minimally invasive, we should emphasize, but in a traditional spine surgery, you you use retractors to take the muscles and move them off of the uh, tendons in the midline bone structures, and then you put them back at the end. They never quite come back the same. And it's believed that that's one of the reasons that people have something called adjacent segment disease, where after you address one level of the spine, say L4-5, you then get problems at L3-4. L23, L12, and you go up and up and up chasing the problems. Minimally invasive spine relies on muscle splitting uh, technologies where either retractors or percutaneous tubes and wires are used. Percutaneous through the skin. Through the skin mm-hmm. to access the spine and to accomplish either decompressions or stabilizations. All
1: right, uh, decompression.
3: Ah, so uh, decompressions are when the bones or the ligaments overgrow and cause compression of the neural elements, whether that's the nerve roots, causing pain down the leg or down the arm, or uh, the spinal cord or thecal sac, causing either uh, compression of the spinal cord where you have difficulty walking, using your hands, or compression of the thecal sac in the lumbar spine, where you have something called neurogenic claudication, difficulty with uh, walking.
1: So, if it's lower down in the, in the back, it's the nerve roots. If it's higher up, it's the cord itself. Exactly. And the, uh, what you try to do. Uh, from the outside is increase the area, the space, so it takes the pressure off either the cord or the nerve ruts.
3: That's precisely right. And you can do it either in a traditional open surgery or in a minimally invasive surgery. In minimally invasive surgery, we rely on one of two things. There's percutaneous and tubular. Tubular means we put a set of tubes. We make an incision off midline to protect the tendons in the middle and to protect the muscles that come into the middle. And we make an incision, and then we put sequential tubular dilators uh, down through the muscle to access the bone to then drill the bone out and close. The incisions can be 18 millimeters, as small as you know, 16, 18 millimeters.
2: How can so you so you that's tell-
3: like an inch or so, yeah, yeah.
2: Inch, yeah. How can you tell if a patient is a candidate for um, in less invasive type of back surgery?
3: Right. That's a great question. Uh, Sometimes the number of uh, levels factors in. So patients with uh, disease across many, many levels may not be great candidates, although they may as well. Uh, A lot of it depends on where the pain generators are and how many pain generators there are. So it's very important to do a good diagnostic workup at the beginning, understand what's generating the pain, and then design a plan to tackle that pain generator. And when you
1: say diagnostic workup, what does that normally
3: involve? So The traditional uh, workup that we start with would be imaging, x-rays, and uh, MRI uh, imaging. Uh, rarely CAT scans, maybe in cases where uh, patients can't get MRIs or where patients have had surgery before.
1: So Um, in in general, an MRI is the best imaging test that you have to look at the spine. Absolutely. An
3: MRI. X-rays are very important, too, because Mm -hmm. they show us dynamically when patients stand up what happens to their bones. Um, And then after that, we'd want to do, potentially, uh, if the patients needed, a series of uh, you could do injections uh, or EMG tests, nerve conduction tests, to understand exactly where the pain's coming from. Generally, especially in patients of a certain age, a lot of areas in the spine will have degeneration or wear and tear of the spine. And so um, th- one of the things that are critical is to identify which of those areas so that we don't go in and address all the areas, but identify which area is symptomatic.
2: Is that the most common type of back complaint, is the wear and tear, age-related type of back issues?
3: Uh, there's uh, two types of, uh, well, there's many types of uh, pain. Uh, one of the types is musculofascial, where you have uh, pain in the muscles, and that generally goes away. You generally, you generally wouldn't even get imaging for that. You'd go see your primary care doctor. He'd tell you, you know, kind of take an aspirin, call me in the morning. He may give you some physical therapy, things like that. Um, pain that's uh, degenerative, spine pain that's degenerative in nature is resulting from that wear and tear, as you say. Um, and so exactly where uh, with older age... The bones get, and the, and the joints get used more and more, they start to wear out much like our other joints do in or orthopedic, uh, in orthopedics. And then, um, as a result of that wearing out, they either lose the joint fluid, or they start to hypertrophy and grow and cause compression around the elements around them.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things that I I think our listeners uh, would appreciate understanding, and that is you mentioned joint disease. Well, in fact, there are small joints between all the different vertebral bodies. So when you talk about degeneration of the hip or the knee, a similar thing can happen in the back. The cartilage wears out in the joints between the vertebrae. And the other thing that degenerates, unfortunately, over time is the disc between the vertebra because it's nice and big and gel-filled and juicy and cushioning when you're young. But as you get older, the thing sort of collapses and degenerates and gets hard. And both of those can cause back pain, right?
3: You're exactly right. There's a number of joints at every single spinal level. Yeah. Um, and so there are. there's the disc, the intervertebral disc, which is a joint that serves between two vertebral bodies. There's the facet joints, which are two joints in the back that help uh, hold the vertebral bodies together and allow for flexion and extension of our backs. And any of those joints can
1: degenerate. I think one of the most important things that you, uh, you have told us today is you mentioned the other modalities, and you want to do try all of those before you have spine surgery. Even though you're a spine surgeon, I understand. That, but it is, it is the thing that you use to, to fix the problem if everything else fails. Absolutely.
3: The most minimally invasive surgery we can offer is no surgery at all. That's so that's absolutely, we want to we avoid surgery as often as we can, as best we can, every time. And so if those other uh, conservative, non-operative measures succeed, then that's
1: perfect, because then the patient can avoid surgery, and that's better for everybody. Our guest is neuro spine surgeon Dr. Mohammed Biden. Time for a short break.
2: When we come back, myth or matter of fact, bed rest is the best cure for back pain. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Our guest is NeuroSpine Surgeon. That is a neurosurgeon who does spine surgery, Dr. Mohammed Biden. Uh, We've been talking talking about minimally invasive spine surgery, a a huge advance, actually, in in spine surgery. And uh, before we talk about the benefits versus open type of procedure, we've got a myth or matter of fact.
2: Yeah, myth or matter of fact. Bed rest is the best cure for back pain. What do you say?
1: Um, A little bit of both.
3: (laughs) So... um, back pain the most common type of back pain is musculoskeletal pain uh, as we discussed a little bit earlier and for that kind of pain can be exacerbated by overusage. and so uh, ice sometimes heat packs um resting uh, those can be very helpful in addition to anti-inflammatories uh, over the counter anti-inflammatories th- those things can be very helpful
1: well, is, is it fair to say that if your back pain is bad enough that over the counter medications won't pretty much relieve the pain that you ought to go see somebody?
3: Absolutely. And I would start with your primary care doctor. Generally, they're going to be very well versed in the initial uh, measures uh, uh, for that. You really, you're going to see a surgeon at the end of the line. First, you're going to see your primary care doctor, then likely a physiatrist, and then, and then a surgeon at the end of that line when everything else has failed.
1: Um, so you've talked to us about minimally invasive surgery. Uh, you haven't told us exactly what kinds of things that you can do. But tell us about the benefits. Tell us about the difference between having a a, a discectomy, having your disc removed openly, the old type of surgery, versus minimally invasive.
3: So with minimally invasive surgeries, we essentially use smaller incisions that preserve the tendinous attachments uh, of the paraspinal muscles. And uh, we use those smaller incisions in order to either decompress or stabilize the spine. Um, and the benefits of it would include uh, less blood loss, less pain, um, lower, uh, uh, improved length of stay. You can leave the hospital earlier, same day, usually uh, returning to work earlier, and greater patient satisfaction and lower infection rates. Those are many of the touted benefits. In addition to preserving the paraspinal muscles, the muscles that hold the spine up, allow you to extend your back and do those things. So those are uh, some of the major uh, benefits of of minimally
2: invasive spine surgery. I have to say that the the thing that I think about when I hear that somebody is going to have back surgery, I just think, in my head, don't say it out loud to them. I think, well, that's it, because (laughs) now you have a life of back pain ahead of you. Is there back surgery that actually makes people feel as good as before that back pain started?
3: So that's a very good question. We do know from some of our national studies and some of our Mayo Clinic studies that uh, patients generally who have neck surgery, cervical spine surgery, about 90% of them would have that same surgery again. And patients who have lumbar surgery, a little over 80% of them would have that same surgery again. So in a vast majority of the cases, people get better enough that they would undergo the same surgery.
1: Again. Well, that say something. But on the other hand, we all know that there are a fair number of back cripples out there. Yeah. People who have had multiple back surgeries that were repeatedly unsuccessful, and now they're basically disabled because of their back. So there's no question. You want to avoid it if you can. But right. if you can't, I mean, I had, you know, remember when I had mm-hmm. neck surgery how mm-hmm. many years ago? It was unavoidable. Right. You know, my arm was starting to go weak and the muscles were going weak. And can, it you works? can't avoid it. Well, I don't know. It, it seemed to. <laughs>
0: Everybody who's in.
1: There's a 99% (laughs) chance that I'd have it again. (laughs) I actually, But I I did everything I could to avoid it. I I agree with you you completely.
3: You know, the the number one thing to do is avoid surgery if you can. I always tell patients the most minimally invasive spine surgery is no surgery at all. That's as, as least invasive as we can get. But if you have to have it, and this is where I think minimally invasive spine surgery can help, The key with minimally invasive surgery is you target that pain generator. You don't just go after every single thing on the MRI that looks like it's degenerated because then you're going after the whole back. Just target that specific area.
2: You mentioned joint replacement. What do you mean by that when it comes to our spine? Uh,
3: So people think of, and Mayo has a long history, in fact a pioneering history, of uh, joint replacements for hips, for knees, um, and throughout uh, orthopedic surgery. For the spine, we discussed some joints in the spine. There is uh, a lot of pioneering Uh, areas around disc replacement. One of the areas of our spine is the disc, which are the intervertebral discs between the vertebral bodies. And there's a lot of literature out there to show the safety and the effectiveness of, rather than doing a fusion at that level where there's no more motion, we do a joint replacement at that level where we preserve the motion. And that, again, would be a way to reduce what we call adjacent segment disease, where people get disease at the levels above and below a spine surgery. So the more that we can preserve motion, Preserve the tendinous attachments of the muscle, the better off that patients are, and those are kind of the mainstays. Um, and, and certainly around disc arthroplasty, it's been more successful in the neck than in the lumbar spine. But we have a number of uh, patients uh, who've benefited from that.
1: So you like disc replacement? I mean, you think it's effective?
3: Yeah, we we have actually. I have a person. I have a high volume of patients who've undergone disc replacement, and and you know the majority of patients with disc replacement. Those numbers. Patients who have disc replacement actually are happier uh, than patients who uh, undergo okay. fusion surgery. I,
1: I, I see. So you can then preserve motion at that level so you don't okay. put uh, get excess motion above and below what I don't understand is that rarely is degenerative disc disease isolated to just one disc. Right. So you're replacing one disc, but you really got disc disease up and down the spine.
3: That's a very good question. That's why when you're choosing those patients who would benefit from a disc replacement, you need to pick those patients who have disease at one level and, and not at multiple levels. In addition, you have to pick those patients whose disease is degenerated somewhat, but not so much that they no longer have any space between their bones, because then the replacement that you put in may fuse anyway. And I would say minimally invasive techniques are also useful for spinal tumors, uh, which is another area that uh, I've, uh, uh, you know, that, that I practice in. Mm-hmm. And so for both degenerative disease and for people who have spinal tumors, there could be minimally invasive options.
2: You had mentioned some firsts here at Mayo Clinic. What are some of those you wanted to share?
3: We've done the first uh, navigated percutaneous discectomy, the first navigated percutaneous... That's so, so what you mean by navigated? Uh, uh, using uh, guidance, uh, g- sort of GPS guidance in the operating room, so to speak. Uh, the first navigated percutaneous fusion, a fusion through a 7-millimeter incision. Wow. Um, the first navigated lateral lumbar uh, inner body fusions, Coming not all, in from the side. Coming in from the side. Not all spine surgeries from the back. We can come in from the side. That has no uh, hip attachment uh, with it. And we have a number of minimally invasive lumbar laminectomies that all also don't require general anesthesia we can do them with uh, a spinal a spinal uh, uh, injections and uh, uh, perform a minimally invasive uh, decompression and that's a big benefit to the patient because they get to avoid general anesthesia
1: yeah not have to go to completely asleep to have the thing done exactly. uh, unbelievable minimally invasive surgery with neurospine surgeon dr. Mohammed Biden thanks so much for being with us thank you very much for having me.
2: still to come on Mayo Clinic radio dr. Jake strand will join me as co-host and we'll hear one doctor's Personal leukemia journey, which not only changed the course of her life but her career.
1: And later on in the program, tips for fighting jet lag.
2: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Do I need to get screening mammograms, and if so, how often should I get them? That's a question many women ask. Dr. Karthik Ghosh, director of the Mayo Clinic Breast Diagnostic Clinic, says mammograms are an essential tool for the early detection of breast cancer. The tests are not perfect, but they help diagnose cancer early while it's still curable. My recommendation is that women 40 and older uh, consider yearly screening mammography. Dr. Ghosh says women should know the risks and benefits of mammography. The big benefit is early detection. Risks include getting called back to get a closer look at tissue, which can cause anxiety. And mammograms may miss cancer in women with dense breasts because cancer and breast tissue both appear white.
4: So for women who have dense breasts, it is important to understand that there are additional tests.
0: Supplemental screening tools include 3D mammography, also called tomosynthesis, molecular breast imaging, and MRI. Supplemental tests are particularly important for women at high risk and for those who test positive for the BRCA1 or 2 genes. Dr. Ghosh says all women should talk to their healthcare care providers about the screening that's best for them. And in other news, let's talk about ankle and knee sprains. Your ligaments are tough, elastic-like bands that connect bone to bone and hold your joints in place. A sprain is an injury to a ligament caused by tearing of the fibers of the ligament. The ligament can have a partial tear or it can be completely torn apart. For most minor sprains, you probably can start initial injury treatment yourself. So what should you do? Follow the instructions for RICE, R-I-C-E. R stands for rest, rest the injured limb. Your doctor may recommend not putting any weight on the injured area for 48 hours. I is ice. Try to ice the area as soon as possible after the injury and continue to ice it for about 15 to 20 minutes four to eight times a day for the first 48 hours or until swelling improves. If you use ice, be careful not to use it too long because this could cause tissue damage. C is for compress. Compress the area with an elastic wrap or bandage. And E is elevate. Elevate the injured limb above your heart whenever possible to help prevent or limit swelling. You can try over-the-counter pain medications if need be. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
5: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McCrae. For as long as she can remember, Allison Rosenthal wanted to be a doctor. Entering medical school, her goal was to become an orthopedic surgeon. After completing her second year of medical school, Allison fell ill, not unusual for an overworked medical student.
2: I heard that's part of the deal, yeah. It happens. But a trip to the emergency department would reveal a scary diagnosis that changed the course of her life and her career. Joining us on the phone from Mayo Clinic's Arizona campus to share her story is Dr. Allison Rosenthal. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rosenthal. It's great to meet you.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Well, hearing that something uh, bad happened at the emergency department uh, probably is a little bit of a foreshadowing, but tell us what happened in the emergency
6: room that day. So, as you mentioned, I had just completed a week of finals, Um, and so during that week there was very little sleep, a lot of studying, and a lot of junk food eating, Um, and so I thought that I had come down with the flu, went to the emergency department locally with symptoms of fever and nausea and vomiting, and thinking that I knew better since I was already (laughs) in med school, I I walked in and I said, I just need you to get the vomiting to stop. I'm on spring break. Um, So I was seen by an ER doctor. They drew some blood, and that person never even came back to see me. The next person I met was a hematologist who walked in and said I needed a bone marrow biopsy. (sighs) Uh, which which of course threw my parents for a loop uh, who were there and, and I knew a little bit about what that meant but it was pretty scary. Their suspicion was that I had acute leukemia um, so we went through with the bone marrow biopsy that same day and found out about two days later that they were right um, and so I actually had a rare uh, type of acute leukemia called acute promyelocytic leukemia which is pretty uncommon um, and has a little bit of a different treatment than you know traditional AML which is a lot more common and so I spent a month in the hospital getting chemotherapy but they thought that I would be okay if things went well from the get-go so predicted that about 85% survival rate with my particular type but it would require a lengthy amount of chemotherapy to get me there.
5: Well, and I remember Dr. Rosenthal being a medical student that I self-diagnosed myself with six or seven different conditions, all of which I thought were going to be completely fatal. And here you are in the emergency department hearing an actual diagnosis of something you may have studied. What was going through your mind, and, and how did you process all of that?
6: Oh, better than my parents'. Um, So to this day, I I mean, in spite of all I went through to get well, I tell people the worst part of the whole thing was when somebody walked in and said the words cancer, and I could literally, I watched the glaze that happened come across my parents' faces, and I know they didn't hear anything after that. So I kind of, I'm a doer, and so I basically said, all right, you know, let's do this. Let's let's work on getting me better. And so there was never a question about whether or not I was going to get, you know, treatment or... Where I was going to get treatment, I stayed where I was. I had wonderful doctors and nurses, and I just put one foot in front of the other. It's kind of the only choice you have at that point.
2: How long of a treatment course did you have?
6: Two and a half years of intermittent chemotherapy, so very intensive for the first four months, and then there was a maintenance program I was on and off of for another two years.
2: So did you put medical school on hold, or what did you did you keep going to
6: school? I did put it on hold. My medical school was phenomenal at being understanding. And so I actually took a whole year off, went back and joined the class behind me and graduated with that class. But when I was back doing clinical rotations, I actually was still in my maintenance phase of treatment.
5: My gosh, that's a tough order. <laughs> well, and, and not just, I imagine, the treatment itself, but also the emotional toll. I, I One of my colleagues in uh, residency also was diagnosed with a different form of leukemia. And I remember talking with her about a year ago, and she said it really changed her perspective on what types of medicine she wanted to practice, but also even some of the medicine that she felt she could practice. I, I wonder what that meant for you and your calling uh, in your career now.
2: Because originally you wanted to be an orthopedic right. surgeon.
6: I did. So I was a gymnast for 16 years. I didn't have a doctor that wasn't a surgeon that hadn't pieced me back together. So naturally, I thought that's what I wanted to do to help people. So when I got sick um, for a little while, my oncologist didn't say anything. But eventually, when I was a little bit further out from treatment, he kept saying to me, you know, you're going to be an oncologist. And I thought, you are insane. Like how, why I would want to do this every day, I'm not sure. But The further I got out from my experience and into clinical rotations and, I mean, the people I related to were my cancer patients and I just started to kind of become a little bit more open-minded about what direction I might be headed and that maybe this happened to me for a reason to kind of change my course and I'm, you know, in a certain sense, I'm glad that it did because I think I'm doing exactly what I was put on this earth to do at this point.
2: Did you decide you wanted to go into oncology while you were still undergoing treatment or was it after the treatment?
6: It was a bit after. I mean, I had to have a little bit of personal distance from it before I could clearly even imagine because when you're in it, it's just, I mean, everything is different. It, It changes everything in your life. It changes your goals, your perspective, what's important. I I had to be a little bit further out before I could even imagine this being something I could do every day.
5: You know, I wonder, what was it like being a patient, and how has that informed how you practice now?
6: Uh, So one of the funny stories that came out of my initial month hospital stay was there was a a particular day um, where I was very ill, um, and I had gone down for, like, my third radiology test of the day, and they left me in a hallway with, like, a call button. And I was furious. And so I somehow made the tech take me back to my room, which was not their job, but they, I think, were scared of how angry I was at that moment. And I came back to my room, and I said to my family, I'm dropping out of medical school. Like, I'm going to be a patient advocate. That's, this is I can't let other people go through something like this, and that was the only point, the only day at which I said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going back to school, and but I just, I was <clears throat> angry at, at how I was treated as a patient that day, um, and so I apply that every day at this point. You know, I when I see patients in the clinic or in the hospital, I, I can put myself in their shoes a lot of times, which I can't say that everybody can do and so that allows me to say like you know would this be okay like if it were me or if this were my mom or my sister I think I have a little bit of a different perspective just having been through it and just from my perspective because I also you know was in that age group when I was diagnosed you know we do a terrible job of supporting adolescents (sighs) and young adults through this stuff no matter what kind of cancer so that's one of my areas of passion and something that we're we're developing here in Arizona is an actual young adult program because It's something we're lacking.
2: Tell us about being named the Woman of the Year. Explain a little bit about that.
6: I did. What an incredible and overwhelming experience it's been. So um, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society runs a contest annually called the Man and Woman of the Year. Uh, You have to be nominated to be a candidate to to run and I had been nominated the last couple years but didn't think that I had the the time and energy to put into it, and I'm a competitive person, so if I was going to do it, I was going to win. <laughs> Perfect. And it's surprising, right? Um, and so this year, I finally said, all right, we'll, we'll put a team together, and we'll get this done. It's important for, for patients, and what it mainly is is a fundraising competition. All the money goes back to patients and support programs for patients through LLS, who obviously supports a lot of research around the world, um, and so my team Uh, One, we raised the most money here and broke a record uh, in the amount of money we raised, which allowed us to allocate it to research portfolio that I thought was relevant to my patients, which was pretty cool. But um, the recognition that has come with it has been pretty incredible and I'm just happy to be able to give back in a different way to patients and I mean it's been some pretty great recognition for Mayo Clinic too. There hasn't been a doctor here that's won in the past so hopefully I've started a new trend.
2: So are you working pay- with patients or are you doing more research or what What kind of work do you do?
6: I'm primarily clinical so I see patients in the clinic most of the time though um, I do a little bit of clinical research. I don't have a lab but we run some clinical trials and Uh, patient outcome type studies
2: are very good we've been talking with dr allison rosenthal from mayo clinics arizona campus about her battle with leukemia
5: and her work now as an oncologist thanks so much for joining us dr rosenthal oh
6: it's been my pleasure thank you for the time
5: we're gonna take a short break and then when we come back we'll learn some tips for fighting jet lag
2: you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network
5: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you've ever flown on an airplane and changed time zones, you may have experienced it. Jet lag. Jet lag is a temporary sleep problem that can affect anyone who travels across multiple time zones. Your body has its own internal clock or circadian rhythms that signal to your body when to stay awake and when to sleep.
2: Mine, I want to sleep a lot more than the usual
5: person, I think. (laughs) Of course.
2: Jet lag occurs because your body's clock is still synced to your original time zone instead of the time zone where you've traveled. The more time zones crossed, the more likely you are to experience jet lag. Here to discuss how to deal with jet lag is the director of the Travel and Tropical Medicine Clinic at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Rizwan Sohail. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sohail. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. So uh, one time zone, two time zones, when, uh, how far do you have to travel before you really
4: experience jet lag? So, In general, uh, most of the people have to travel three or more time zones to experience real jet lag, but occasionally people would experience it after a couple of uh, travel zones as well.
2: I, I would say that. Yeah. I definitely notice it after two. I don't know about one, but two for sure.
5: Do you feel like, you know, this is the question that I always wonder, you know, with, uh, as a parent of young children, but also talking with my parents as well, going from west to east or east to west, does that make a difference?
4: Yes, it does. And people experience worse jet lag when they travel towards east. And it's primarily because when you travel towards east, you have to get into habit of sleeping early. And then wake up early as well. And it's always easier to sleep late because, you know, you can just scroll through your Facebook or Twitter (laughs) and stay awake all the time. But it's harder to, you know, start sleeping earlier. You know, you have to turn off your electronics and have limited exposure to sunlight. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's...
5: Makes a difference.
4: I would say, with uh, your children
2: are so young that when even time zone, or when they not just going from one time zone to another, but when it's a day, we go to daylight savings.
5: That's right. Yeah, that early morning, they're up either way. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. they don't have that lucky ability. So,
4: (laughs) what are the symptoms of jet lag? So, because the jet lag occurs uh, of this mismatch between the internal clock and the external light and dark cycles, uh, people have difficulty falling asleep and then staying asleep. And because of that, they don't get enough sleep. And during the daytime, they have excessive sleepiness. They are unable to focus and concentrate. And that, coupled with the travel fatigue itself, because, you know, travel is tiresome, uh, people may experience that they have irritable mood. They have difficulty interacting with others. They get angry very quickly, especially if they're traveling with kids or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, other co-travelers, uh, and then uh, they may have difficulty driving or focusing on their tasks, sometimes business dealings. They may have you know, difficulty remembering things, uh, and it's all primarily because of the sleep that they're experiencing.
5: So how long can we blame our irritable mood on jet lag, <laughs> and how long does our body actually get used to it where we, ha- we should start to feel functioning more normally?
2: Just in time for the conference to be done. That's right. <laughs> the exactly. va- or the vacation to <laughs> be
5: right. done.
4: So. It depends. If you have planned in advance and have done certain steps to limit the jet lag in advance, then you could be over it in two, three days. However, depending on how many time zones you've traveled, if you travel like eight time zones, it may take your body five or six days or up to seven days to adjust. And as you said, you know, conference is over, it's time to head back then. Therefore, it's absolutely necessary to plan in advance and do the preventive things as much as you can to limit the jet lag.
2: You like the preventive things. I didn't even think about that. So what are some of the
4: preventative steps that you can take? So there are things you can do before you travel, during your travel, and when you get there. So before you travel, make sure that you're well-rested so you don't start off with a sleep debt. Uh, secondarily, depending on which way you're traveling, so if you're traveling towards east, uh, then get into habit of going to bed early. And that would be, you know, turning things off, stepping away from your electronics, limiting exposure to sunlight in the afternoons.
2: Getting up at 3
4: a.m., 4 (laughs) a.m. And then, uh, you know, go out if you can. But in Minnesota, you may not have that luxury. So, (laughs) you know, turn on the lights indoors and have exposure to bright sunlight before you go. And then go to your local store and get some Tylenol PM or occasionally melatonin, and we'll talk about, you know, treatment later mm-hmm. on. And then when you get to the plane, turn your watch to the destination time zone. So during the travel, then try to s- sleep and stay awake as per your destination time zone. So if it's, if you're traveling to Dubai and it's daytime during Dubai, Try to stay awake, and if it's nighttime, you know, put your window shades down, put some sunglasses or eye patches on, and uh, avoid drinking excessive amount of caffeine during your travel, uh, also avoiding alcohol. Alcohol may not help you with a jet lag or prevent the jet lag, but it makes you excessively sleepy, so you may get blood clots in your legs, which would be worse than having a jet lag. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when you reach the your destination, then... Again, if you're traveling towards east, uh, then try to sleep in early. Uh, so limit your exposure to sunlight at that time. Uh-huh. Turn off your electronics, go to bed, wake up early, get exposed to the sunlight. Uh-huh. And when you're traveling the west, you have to do completely the opposite. Uh, in addition, when you get there, uh, try to schedule your meals uh, and social contacts according to the local time zone rather than you know, with your or, origin time zone. Are there some people who are more susceptible to getting jet lag?
2: I would imagine, like you said, if you go into the into the travel tired.
4: But in, besides that, are people more susceptible? So in general, uh, as we age, uh, uh, our uh, body may have difficulty adjusting to the time zone. So... In many studies, the older adults had difficulty adjusting. Uh, Similarly, women have more difficulty adjusting to the local time zones compared to men, and it's not really clear what the reason is, Uh, but this trend has been observed in some of the studies. Interesting. Kids, on the other hand, uh, tend to adjust uh, quite well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have about 90 seconds left. Could you tell us about some treatments for jet lag? So the treatments could be over-the-counter, so you could try Tylenol PM or Advil PM, which has some Benadryl in it, and helps you sleep. Uh, Then there's melatonin, it's a hormone which is over-the-counter, and there's a dose range, but usually like three milligrams of melatonin. When it's time to go to bed, like whatever that time is, Mm -hmm. 8 p.m., 9 p.m., you should take it. It peaks a few hours later and helps you sleep earlier and stay asleep longer. And then if these things don't work, you can always ask your doctor for a prescription medications like Ambien or Leonesta or Sonata. We typically advise people to try not to use them because occasionally you can get a hangover the next day and then... You know, that's
5: a difficult thing. To Keeps yourself with. from getting on that cycle of the local time zone that you exactly. described. That's helpful.
2: I can just see you, Dr. Strand, at the uh, conference in Dubai, asleep in the front row.
5: <laughs> that would be that would be less than <laughs> ideal. So I'm going to take some of these travel steps, including some of the prevention pieces. I think, again, we we look for that quick fix over the counter instead of doing some of these things ahead of time. So I greatly really appreciate that advice good. today.
2: I have a theory that it is harder to go just one or two time zones than it is to go like six or eight hours Am I making that up
4: or is that right? No, that's a brilliant observation. And in fact, like in some of the studies where they looked at how far people travel, it seems that if you travel more than eight time zones, you're more likely to adjust to the local times easily compared to two or three time zones. So you're right. Because it's a complete flip-flop instead of just a little tweaking of your schedule. Exactly.
5: The beauty of tweaking your brain. That's perfect.
2: We've been talking about jet lag with Mayo Clinic expert Dr. Rizwan Sohail. Dr. Sohail is the director of the Travel and Tropical Medicine Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today.
5: Thank you. My pleasure. And that's our program for this week.
1: Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
2: Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.